Time and time again, I've had the pleasure on the morning show of speaking with author Patrick O'Donnell, who has given the world a, a host of marvelous and fascinating books, most of them uh, surrounding themes of war and heroism, and uh, in many cases, uh, largely obscure stories that uh, uh, are, are so important for us to know. Uh, most recently, I believe I spoke with Patrick O'Donnell about his remarkable book called The Unknowns, the untold story of America's unknown soldier and World War I's most decorated heroes who brought him home. Uh, his uh, recent works also include Washington's Immortals, the untold story of an elite regiment who changed the course of a revolution. Uh, he has written uh, extensively on a number of different topics. His most recent book, as fine as any he has written, is called The Indispensables, the diverse soldier marines who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. We all know, at least in the vaguest, most shallow sort of sense, something of the story of George Washington crossing the Delaware and uh, that was on the eve of one of the most important, perhaps the most important turning point uh, in the Revolutionary War. But it turns out that most of us know actually next to nothing about what that crossing of the Delaware was all about or how perilous a crossing, in fact, it was. And we certainly, if we even know that, know very little about the very, very brave and skilled men who made that crossing Possible. And uh, that is what is explored in this fascinating book published by Atlantic Monthly Press, again titled The Indispensables. Patrick O'Donnell, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. It's always an honor to come on your show. And, you know, this is something we've been doing, I think, since my first book. And uh, that's you know, that was over 20 years ago. So this is great. To, it's great to be back on with you. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful to be connecting. So I, I want you to, before we get into this fascinating story of this specific book, talk about the different challenge that it is to uncover and illuminate a story from the Revolutionary War versus many of your other books that explore, for instance, uh, chapters from the Second World War or the Korean War, even conflicts as recent as the war in Afghanistan. What kind of a challenge does it present to you as the author when we are talking about a conflict fought as long ago as the American Revolution? Greg, for me, um, each one of the books I write is a journey, and it's a research journey. I, um, I spend a lot of time um, going to the battlefield that these men fought in, I go to their homes. I go to their, I go to the cemeteries they're buried in, um, and I use almost all primary sources. And this book was the greatest research challenge I've ever faced. It took five years to write, and the story was unknown, and I had to really unearth it. And it was, it came from many, many sources, many archives. Um, a primary source was I initially started out with something called the muster rolls, and this is the these are the men that were in the regiment, and they're sort of snapshots in time. the The roll would tell you who was in each company at a specific date and time. So you had literally what, thousands of individuals that I had to track down, and I did. I did genealogy on all of them, and 
found their letters, their diaries. But I, the primary source was something called pension applications. And if you were lucky enough to survive the American Revolution by 1820, you could go down to a, a, a courthouse and swear under oath what you saw and did. And this is a great oral history, untapped oral history for the most part, of the American Revolutionary War. And a lot of the indispensables is from the it's from these primary sources, and it's in their own words of what they saw and did, hmm. which makes it really, uh, I think, special. Because my this book is a boots on the ground treatment of the Revolutionary War. It's about the the, the common soldier. Um, many of them were diverse: uh, African Americans, Native Americans, Hispanics, um, that were all part of the town of Marblehead, which was a very cosmopolitan town, and it was the largest town, second largest town in Massachusetts uh, at the time. It's about 16 miles of the crow flies from Boston. And, um, you know, it was just reconstructing their stories uh, to tell a narrative history, um, which the, the Wall Street Journal raved with um, novel-like, mm. basically. It really is uh, an amazing story and very, very well told. Before we dig into the story, I want to take a moment to talk about the beautiful, dramatic cover of the book. Uh, explain to our listeners what is seen on the cover. And uh, I suspect that this is a very carefully chosen cover. It was. I was the one that actually designed the cover. I have a... I, um I have a play. I, uh, I have a hand in pretty much. I handcraft my books. And I, it's it's a it's a it's a you know it's a it's a labor of love. But the the cover is deliberate. It's the Emanuel uh, Luntz uh, painting. But what it is is cropped to focus in on the men in the boat. And the men in the boat are the men that are in the book, the Marbleheaders. And and you have an African American uh, actually rowing the boat. Um, in there, and there's Native Americans. He, you know, people can, you know, have issues with some of the historical accuracy of the of the painting, but it it's symbol it's symbolic, it's it's emblematic of the the journey across the, the Delaware, which was, as you pointed out earlier, just exceptionally hard. Um, every effort that Washington had, there were four prongs that went across that night of the army, and the other three failed because they didn't involve the Marblehead men. The, they, the skills that were needed to take the boats across were exceptional, and it, it required exceptional men. And the, the, their training um, as a team, they worked together as a team, um, often in the Grand Banks, which this is um, you know well over a thousand miles uh, north of Boston, out in the Atlantic near Nova Scotia, where the the seas are, are are treacherous. Literally, hundreds of men would die every every few years from Marblehead from the sea, um, and it created hardened men, but it created teams of individuals. And it's interesting because they were multi multiracial. Um, you know, there are African Americans, free African Americans on these boats. There were uh, Native Americans, Hispanics, uh, as well as the the white members of the town, um, all working together because. In a split second, you could die at sea, and you had to trust one another, and you had to work together as a team. And that carried over into the American Revolution. Hmm. 
um, when this regiment was formed, which makes it very unique. It's one of the first uh, racially diverse uh, regiments, but also it's one of um, arguably America's greatest um, regiments or units under arms that did so much to save the war uh, and, and then shape it. Um, politically, too, many of the mainsprings, intellectual mainsprings of the revolution come from Marblehead. Um, they're the financiers of the war at the early stages, and they bring in another crucial supply, gunpowder, which is exceptionally rare in the American Rev- in the early years of the revolution. And, and the British know this, and they try to basically disarm Americans by seizing their power supplies. Hmm. I so appreciate that image on the cover, and you know, it reminds me that uh, just about all of us have, at one point or another, seen Emanuel Lutz's famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. And, of course, just as that the name of the painting, Washington crossing the Delaware, or at least that's how we think of that painting, it's all about George Washington. And when we look at that painting, most of us, or at least me, really all we see is that noble figure of George Washington standing in that boat and uh, the figures around him uh, if we don't take the moment uh, take a moment to really look at them uh, pretty much escape our notice altogether uh, they almost blend in with the boat itself and uh, by taking just the sort of front portion of that painting where we do not see Washington where our eye is drawn to the men who were propelling that boat across that ice-strewn Delaware River. I mean, that shifts our our attention dramatically. And, of course, that's the whole point of your book. Exactly. And I did that that cropping deliberately. The the, the publisher initially wanted to include Washington. I said, absolutely not. We need to make it about the men. And, you know, we actually honor Washington by um, his photo, his uh, image is actually on the spine of the book. But the, the focus is about the men. And it's about the common soldier. Um, it's also about, you know, there's there's stories in here that are really pretty extraordinary. I capture the stories of many women uh, that are exceptionally interesting, such as the first loyalist combatant, for instance, at Fort William and Mary. Um, and her story is is really, and I mean, she's in the midst of battle. She hands her her husband, a, you know, a brace of pistols to ward off attackers on in what is the first shots of the American Revolution in December 1774. Um, Sarah Cochran. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to bring in as many angles as I can uh, in these in the narratives. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it's very hard uh, in some cases, such as the women's stories, because there there's so few sources um, that have survived. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Patrick uh, O'Donnell about his most recent book titled The Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. You have touched briefly, but we need to uh, spend some time talking more specifically about uh, the town, the community that gave this regiment, the Marblehead Regiment, its name, and it namely is Marblehead, Massachusetts, which, uh, as you describe in the book, is uh, a fascinating sea community 
that was in some ways uh, an uncommon community in, 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 in several ways that are crucial for understanding uh, the story that you tell in The Indispensables. Tell our listeners more about Marblehead, Massachusetts, and its great significance, particularly uh, in, in the years leading up to the beginning of the Revolutionary War. Marblehead was a, a trading hub for Massachusetts. And Massachusetts' economy in 17, the 1770s and, and 1760s, it relied on a, one commodity in particular, cod, cod fishing. And the men of Marblehead were fishermen, uh, but they were also merchants and traders. But the fishermen would would uh, would fish the Grand Banks, which were the most dangerous waters of the world, and they still they still are arguably um, where the you know the Grand Banks were teeming with cod and cod. Um, Greg, this is these are hundred pound fish or more, and these men were having had to manhandle the fish. And then brave the the elements, and um, it was a uh, it was within this community, which was very cosmopolitan, that the fish would be um, then exported for around the world for other commodities, and then brought back um, to Massachusetts. But the town itself was very cosmopolitan and pretty diverse. It, there was slavery there, but it was also uh, the largest part of the population where there were free African Americans. There was an Indian population. There were Hispanics from the trading, you know, from their trading post that people would come back um, with them. And uh, they lived side by side uh, together. Uh, many times they went to church services together. Um, and it was a uh, it was a tough life, though, because of the sea. And uh, fortunes were made by it. Uh, the town's elite were some of the wealthiest men in the colony. Um, but, you know, it was a situation of boom and bust. Uh, sometimes the, the catch was hard or, you know, like I said, hundreds literally died at sea. Uh, and this, this created very hard men um, and women uh, that, uh, that would become instrumental in the revolution. Um, but they were, what's interesting is that the crown interfered with their lives in many ways. And the, the opening scene of the book is um, with something is a ship it's a a packet and it's 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 you know basically coming back from a trading mission and the boat is uh is boarded by the hms rose and they're boarding it because they are going to take the 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 sailors on board the ship the marble hunters captive um and they're impressing them into service with the royal navy which is effectively slavery um you were never allowed to leave the Royal Navy once you were um, impressed and you were paid a little pittance. Um, But it was a a very hard life. And many people that were impressed would never return home. It didn't matter if you had a family or anything, but your life was completely uh, disrupted. And uh, these men knew that what was coming and they defied the crown. Uh, They told the the British officer that was, that had boarded the ship that if he came a step further, it's interesting. It was a, a, a bag of salt had spilled across the deck, and Michael Corbett had taken his foot and drew a line uh, with the sand and said, if you cross that line, um, you're dead. And uh, the British officer just took a whiff of snuff and ignored the order, and he suddenly had a, a 
a harpoon in his carotid artery, and he was he was killed on the deck. And you know the story is really fascinating because America's first super lawyer, John Adams, represents Michael Corbett, and and gets him off. And the and, and the court records uh, were used to build that scene that I just described to you. And uh, but it's an act of defiance. Um, that, that continues to galvanize Marblehead, which are their lives are constantly being um, interfered with by bureaucrats 3,000 miles away. They're taxed. Um, and ultimately, the fishery uh, of the Grand Banks is, is forbidden for them to go to, basically affects putting them all out of work, um, along with the Boston Port Act, which has shut down Boston and, um, you know, thousands are out of work. Uh, the judges that they had for their judicial system were replaced with crown officials, so there was no real justice. I mean, it's just all these things, all these factors lead to these men um, re- basically as resistance against the crown. And then you have something very interesting occur. Marblehead men in their ships bring back a deadly virus. Um, they bring back the virus, and it divides the town politically between the patriots of the town and the loyalists of the town, and that virus is smallpox. Hmm. That is one of the most dramatic chapters in the book, I mean, at least ahead of the chapter that describes this uh, remarkable crossing of the Delaware. But And, of course, uh, when we hear about uh, a raging epidemic uh, like smallpox, of course, that feels like a, a very timely story indeed, particularly the story of an epidemic that divides a population uh, in, in some really uh, in, intriguing ways. Even ahead of this epidemic, it's fair to say that Marblehead, Massachusetts, uh, had some division. That is, there were many residents of that community that deeply resented the British and this uh, ever-enlarging list of so-called intolerable acts inflicted on them by England, but that there also were loyalists in Marblehead. And so, uh, so, so there was already this division in place, but I suppose the epidemic really brought it to light or maybe exacerbated some of those divisions. Absolutely. And, and I try to capture the, the both sides. Um, as fairly as possible to understand where they're coming from. Um, one of the main characters in the book is Ashley Bowen, who's a he's a rigger, he um, he's a sailmaker, um, and he's a loyalist. He believes in the crown. He had it's remarkable. He literally was impressed, um, but he was able to save many Marbleheaders in, through, through his impressment in the French and Indian War. And then, uh, then also escape. Um, but he still remained loyal to the crown, and he remained true to his principles, which I found just fascinating. And it is a, he, his diary is is quite remarkable. Um, and then you also have a guy by the name of King Hooper, who is, you know, an exceptionally wealthy man, and he is best friends with General Gage. Gage actually stays at his other home uh, when he comes to the colonies. Um, and so you have this. This, this rivalry between, you know, several titans um, within the town that are exceptionally wealthy, Jeremiah Lee, who's, um, who's a patriot. Uh, and they, the rivalry is, is really quite amazing. I and mean, these men are 
I, I kind of teased it out because I found their, their oil paintings and they had like rival waistbands. They were just rotund individuals uh, and, you know, triple chins or more. Um, but they also had these ex- exceptionally large mansions. And, um, but they were vying, vying for control and power within the town. And the, the virus divides the town. And um, it's quite fascinating. There's a lot of political violence uh, that occurs. Uh, the Marbleheaders come up with a novel solution. They try to inoculate the population, the patriots at least do. They, they, they put their own money up, and they spend 2,000 pounds, which is an enormous fortune for the time, to build an inoculation hospital. An inoculation at this time is exceptionally dangerous. It's taking a knife and lancing a, a wound in front of, uh, on top of your shoulder, and then placing a small portion of the virus in there. And the plan is to give your body, um, you know, a, small, a tiny portion of the virus to start to build up antibodies. Um, you know, this generally worked, but it could also kill you or cause, you know, massive uh, pustules all over your body and, and enormous amounts of pain. And the hospital was pretty successful, but one of the um, patients, um, went back into the town and infected people. And the loyalists in the town used the um, the virus and what happened there as a political weapon, and uh, they organized a group of about 15 men to row in the dead of night to the hospital and torch it to the ground with people inside. Um, and uh, the Marbleheaders, like John uh, Glover, who's the main character of my book, who's a fisherman, merchant, uh, later the regimental commander and Elbridge Gary and Jeremiah Lee know who the perpetrators were that, that, that did this crime. And they go to the sheriff and they arrest the individuals. But the, um, the loyalists stir up a mob of a, well over a thousand people. And the record, the, the records of this are in the Salem Gazette or the Essex Gazette. It's, it's amazing. Uh, the, the jails broken into with crowbars and axes. They, crushed like huge oak doors they free the men and then the how the homes of the uh, patriots are surrounded by an angry mob and they're threatened with death um john glover who's the regimental commander of the unit eventually um devises a unique way of, of dealing with the problem he takes a six pound cannon and rolls it into his foyer and when the crowd um, emerges on his front lawn he orders the front doors opened, and uh, he has a lighted torch in his hand with the with the cannon, uh, ready for fire. And he just, and he demands that they disperse, and they do. Hmm. Something that f- feels like it's right out of a cinematic stri- uh, script, uh, but uh, but here it is: uh, events playing out in, in such dramatic fashion. We should also say at one point you say, Marblehead was at the forefront of colonial politics, that this was not just a community with sort of brawny men of the sea, but this was also a, a community in which uh, extensive discussion took place. And, uh, and it's probably fair to say that certain ideas central to the whole concept of, of uh, resisting the tyranny of the British, that many of those ideas... Uh, were nourished and uh, took took shape uh, in in some of what un- unfolded in in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Is that fair to say? 
Absolutely. Um, the intellectual mainspring of Marblehead is Elbridge Gary, who's an exceptionally wealthy merchant. His family has, um, you know, a, well over a dozen ships that, that trade at sea and, and fish, etc. And Gary is a Harvard-trained. He takes the abstract concept of republicanism with a small r um, to to reality. He lives it in his life. It's something that is imbued in him. It's something that he really strongly believes in. And that's sort of civic virtue over self, um, placing you know the good of the of the people above himself and in in uh, in a form of government, etc. And he, liberty is also a big deal, and freedom. And his mentor is Samuel Adams, who's a firebrand. Um, and his story is absolutely fascinating. Uh, the uh, the connection between the two, the Sons of Liberty, um, has a profound impact on the early days of the Revolution. The other thing is these men are, are exceptionally wealthy and powerful. And they sit on, um, as the war, as, the, as time goes on in 1774, they form committees of safety and committees, and various committees, which are the, the Massachusetts provisional government. And this is a shadow government that is, that operates without authority from the crown. But it's actually making all of the decisions in the early stages of the American Revolution. And the Marbleheaders sit on all of the key committees and make the key decisions. And this is even before um, the First Continental Congress is able to weigh in on things after the first shots of, um, of the uh, at Lexington and Concord, and even before. They are authorizing, they're seeing where things are going. They know that General Gage is going to disarm them and crush the revolution by rounding up the ringleaders uh, and taking away all the gunpowder, etc. So the Marbleheaders are bringing in uh, this gunpowder uh, through their trading contacts in Spain primarily. Um, and they forge America's first alliance. Uh, this is critical uh, because of their relationships with the king and, and then a trading, a major trading, mega trading family within Spain. Uh, and our first foreign aid comes from Spain through the Marbleheaders. Um, but they, they sit on all these key committees and they make the key decisions in the early stages of the American Revolution. So they, they're exceptionally influential and important in not only the kinetic or the, the combat, but also in the influence and power of, of the early revolution and, and it's in, in how it's, um, it's values mm. in many cases of what it, what they believe in. We're speaking with Patrick O'Donnell about his most recent book, the indispensables, the diverse soldier Marines who shaped the country, formed the Navy and rode Washington across the Delaware. Uh, as you, tell the story of the Revolutionary War and of the place of John Glover's Marblehead Regiment uh, in that effort, uh, you paint a very, very vivid picture indeed of how poorly the revolution goes for the Americans uh, in, 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 the first, in the first few years. And we are teetering on the brink of, of defeat at so many points in time. And you quote, poignant letters from General George Washington, uh, who is painfully aware of this reality. And uh, we just uh, c can only be astonished at his 
resolve uh, in in the face of of, of such uh, such intimidating odds. I mean, with, there are just so many ways in which the Americans are at a uh, a, a drastic disadvantage. One story that is so important, and I think many Americans do not know this, is how close the Americans came to uh, complete defeat and disaster uh, in a battle that takes place on Long Island. And uh, this is not one of those names that uh, sort of looms large in the collective memory of most Americans. Only if you've really studied the Revolutionary War uh, does, does someone understand the importance of this? And your book, of course, helps us understand the importance of the Marblehead Regiment uh, in helping us escape from the jaws of disaster. Explain to our listeners uh, what was unfolding in late August 1776 and uh, the role of the Marblehead Regiment in this dramatic this moment. Is, this is the American Dunkirk that takes place uh after the Battle of Brooklyn, the army faces a, I mean, it was, it, it basically, it had a crushing defeat. Um, I wrote a book called Washington's Mortals, where I highlighted um, an epic stand in American Thermopylae, where the Marylanders um, made a series of charges that allowed the army to escape into its fortifications at Brooklyn Heights. But then, at that point, they were subject to the full weight of Lord Howell's army, which was which outnumbered them, and the full weight of the Royal Navy, the greatest naval force on Earth at the time. And they were surrounded, practically. The um, if, if the Royal Navy had been able to go up the East River behind the fortifications at, at, um, at Brooklyn, where the Americans were entrenched, it would have been all over. Um, and Washington recognized the, the dire and perilous situation that he was in. He, just, you know, he had a decision: he could stand and fight, um, which wasn't a good one, or retreat. And that's really a miraculous story uh, in many ways, Greg, because the a retreat under enemy fire across a river <laughs> in the dead of night is one of the hardest operations you can. A military army can perform in any way. It's it's exceptionally difficult, and the the entire war really rests on the shoulders of the Marblehead because they will man the boats that brings the nearly ten thousand men out of Brooklyn into Manhattan across the East River, and it's an, it's a mile long river uh, that it's exceptionally treacherous. There are currents and tides that are to make crossing it really difficult and that night um it's august 29th the british are poised to destroy the army probably capture washington and the war um and they they begin to withdraw glover has hardly any time to prepare he's he's initially told that they're going to attack but instead they're they move towards the boats and his men have to within you know, minutes orient themselves on, on how to sail these boats, which they're actually experts at because they do, that's all they do with the Grand Banks. And they have to bring 10,000 men off and they, they have to do it by multiple crossings. They go back and forth across the East river. And initially the tides don't favor them and, and the, the boats can't get anywhere. 
and the commander of the um, the uh, you know the escape, if you will, who's the overall in, in charge of the uh, of the retreat, uh, tries to go to Washington to call the whole thing off. Luckily that night, he couldn't find Washington, and the the, the evacuation proceeds. Another thing that occurs is loyalists in the town, where their homes overlook some of the entrenchments, see what's going on, and they send um, in one one in particular sends an enslaved um, individual into the the camp of the the British army to let them know, hey, they're, the Americans are leaving. Um, you know, miraculously though, this individual runs into a group of Hessian soldiers. These are German allies of the British army that don't speak English. So they don't really know what he's trying to say. Uh, and, the, and, the, and it doesn't go up the chain of command in a timely manner. So the, the, the Americans under Glover's command uh, are able to evacuate the army. And, um, you know, they, they, just don't, they still don't have enough time. And miraculously, at, as dawn is approaching, a massive fog cloaks and screens the evacuation, allowing the army to escape in what is, I think, arguably the greatest evacuation in world history. It's the American Dunkirk. (laughs) And and, and an incredible moment that, uh, as I said, most of us as Americans know next to nothing about. Um, And your book goes on to to, uh, give us uh, understanding of other significant moments ahead of the crossing of the Delaware, including a uh, a battle that's known as the Battle of Pell's Point, in which, once again, uh, the Marblehead uh, Regiment plays a role. I want to also mention, before I uh, run out of time, that your book also outlines how uh, there is the creation of something called Washington's Life Guard that uh, is, in a sense, a precursor of of the uh, Secret Service that uh, has guarded all of our, our U.S. presidents. And... Uh, but in a sense, the this is this is the beginning of that. And again, the Marblehead Regiment or many of its brave men are are a part of this. But I think we need to make sure to uh, give you adequate uh, opportunity to talk about the central event of your amazing book, The Indispensables, namely the actual crossing of the Delaware. Uh, we've already touched on the desperate straits in which the uh, American army found itself in the early part of the revolution and that the Battle of Trenton, which immediately followed the crossing of the Delaware, was a very, very significant turning point. Explain the circumstances which which compelled uh, General Washington to concoct what in some respects seemed like a, a foolish idea of crossing the Delaware River in the dead of winter. This this time period, November, December, is it's arguably some of those darkest days in America, um, in American history, because we had suffered one crushing defeat after another. There's the Battle of Brooklyn. There's there's the Battle of Fort Washington, where there's nearly three thousand Americans are rounded up and killed or captured, which in many cases they they're put on prison ships and die. Um, and it, it goes on and on. And the political mood of the country, the zeitgeist, is changing because of these defeats. It doesn't look like these farmers and fishermen and, and tradesmen are able to beat the greatest army in the world and the greatest navy in the world at the time. 
and people are signing up in droves uh, for oaths of allegiance to the crown. Uh, this is particularly the case in, the, in New Jersey. And, uh, I mean, the, the tide of the war has completely changed. And the enlistments of the regiments in the Army uh, are expiring. Um, and men will just be able to go home. Uh, Washington has a, an army initially of about 20,000 men at New York, and it's just dwindled down to thousands now. Uh, there's, there's, uh, and it's going to get even worse. By uh, December 31st, 1776, uh, the, all, nearly all of the enlistments expire. So there's going to be nothing left. So Washington knows that he has to throw everything at a desperate gamble. And his code word for that operation or password for the operation that night is victory or death because he knows it's either going to happen or it's going to fail, and it nearly fails. I mean, it's miraculous that it, that succeeded um, because the, there was a nor'easter that night, and um, it pelted the Army, and uh, it made the, ri- the river crossing uh, impassable for mm-hmm. nearly every aspect of the Army's crossing. They, they failed in every point other than the marble hunters that night. Mm. British intelligence had also picked up that the, the operation was going to go off. And they informed Johann Rall, that, that, who was the Hessian commander, who's an excellent commander, by the way. He was born in, into the military and fought his entire life and was quite the hero uh, in numerous occasions. He was, he was an outstanding commander, in fact. Um, but a series of events lead him to believe that the, the operation had occurred earlier. There was a smaller raid that was unauthorized by, um, by a Virginian. And, and, and then, and so Brawl thinks that that might have been it. And then also it's like, there's a massive nor'easter. There's no way the Americans would attack me during that. But that um, actually helped screen the army uh, and the movements. And they, uh, they move forward, thanks to the Marbleheaders. They, they cross the river. All the other um, crossings failed at night, and the Marbleheaders uh, charged down the, 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 the riverside of, of Trenton. And without authorization, uh, John Glover recognizes a crucial choke point. Uh, there's a bridge at the Aston Peak Creek, and that is Johann Rawls' main means of escape if things go bad. And they're going bad. Washington's army's up north, the northern part of the, of the town. And attacking him, Rawls holding his own, but suddenly realizes there's no means of escape. He can't get away. If he's able to cross the S&P Creek, he's able to go to Bordentown and link up with other Hessian commanders. And they have then will have a force that's sizable enough to potentially um, take on Washington. Um, but it doesn't happen because John Glover captures the bridge and they put cannon on the high ground and they start to pelt Rawls' men which causes a double envelopment and a, uh, an encirclement, and in the, in the, they surrender. Which in the 18th century army, uh, or times of the Revolutionary War, was exceptionally rare. What happened in most cases is the armies would battle. One side would see that they, it, that they weren't, it wasn't, the battle wasn't going to go well for them, and they would immediately retreat. But it creates a decisive victory, which changes the, the zeitgeist. It changes the, the, the mood of the country. But it's only one in a series of three battles in, in ten crucial days. There's the Battle of Assunpink Creek seven days later where the Marbleheaders, um, at least a portion of the Marbleheaders, make an epic stand at a bridge. Uh, they repel a Br- British attack three or four times. And then at the Battle of Princeton uh, where they, um, 
they are victorious as well. And the British Army is, is suffers a, a catastrophic defeat, which goes worldwide. Um, and, uh, you know, it has repercussions in the colonies, and it changes the entire mood of the country. Um, and, and everything changes, basically, from that. It's one of America's greatest victories. You, of course, chronicle in amazing detail uh, the actual dramatic crossing of of the Delaware. And I so appreciate the fact that we learn from your book the scope of that crossing, because if all we know about this is that famous painting, it sort of feels like it was one boat. <laughs> and, uh, and of right. course, it wasn't. It was, uh, we although you tell us we don't know exactly how many boats, uh, there were a number of vessels uh, involved. And explain to our listeners just how many men we're talking about that crossed the Delaware that night and the kind of incredible skill that was required of uh, the men of the Marblehead Regiment to accomplish this, this crossing uh, as, as well and as safely as they did. Over 2,600 um, Americans were able to cross that night thanks to the Marblehead, Marbleheaders, and it's it's their skill and teamwork that had been forged years earlier um, in the Grand Bank that allowed them to, to make it across because the the, the, the the river itself was impassable. There was ice in it, and it was there was a mat, there was current, and then you have this this nor'easter that, that's howling and and blowing snow and sleet, in in some cases freezing rain in the faces of the men. And just to give you a little bit of a, I mean. Many of these guys had no shoes. They didn't have winter clothing. And their tracks, there were blood on their tracks because of the, the fact that they didn't have proper uh, proper shoes. That just gives you an idea of how hard um, these men were, but also just how difficult and the sacrifice that needed to be made that night. And it's exceptional. I think most Americans look at the American Revolution as a foregone conclusion, and it, they take it for granted. But this is eight years of war against the greatest army and navy at the world at the time and the greatest economy. And it's a miracle that um, America was able to prevail. Right. And, of course, in the case of these men of the Marblehead Regiment, it's no accident that they are successful in effecting this across uh, the, the crossing of the Delaware, while others who were charged with ferrying other uh, troops across the Delaware failed. <laughs> I mean, it, it was because of who they were, their experience, their skill, that allowed them to be successful where others failed. Absolutely. And Henry Knox has an amazing quote, uh, just putting you in the boat and telling the people that he wrote the letter to that if you were there, you would just be astounded mm. on what these small, this small group of men did and how they changed the course of history. Right. I want to read this. This is from Henry Knox. I wish the members of this body, meaning the uh, Massachusetts legislature knew the people of Marblehead as well as I do. 
I could wish that they had stood on the banks of the Delaware River in 1776 in that bitter night when the commander-in-chief had drawn up his little army to cross it and had seen the powerful current bearing onward the floating masses of ice which threatened destruction to whomever should venture upon its bosom. I wish that when this occurrence threatened to defeat the enterprise, they could have heard that distinguished warrior demand, who will lead us on? and seen the men of Marblehead, and Marblehead alone, stand forward to lead the army along the perilous path to unfading glories and honors in the achievements of Trenton. There, sir, went the fishermen of Marblehead, alike at home upon land or water, alike ardent, patriotic, and unflinching whenever they unfurled the flag of the country." Your book is an amazing testament to their bravery. And, uh, and your book also spells out uh, the ultimate cost to Marblehead, Massachusetts. All of the women left as widows, all of the children left without fathers at the end of that long and hard-fought war. An incredible story told in The Indispensables. The diverse soldier marines who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware published by Atlantic Monthly Press, the author Patrick O'Donnell. Patrick O'Donnell, thank you for giving the world this remarkable book, and thank you for being part of the morning show today. Great, thank you. It was really an honor. Uh, thank you for such a beautiful interview. Thank you.